Good morning. Good morning. As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons of the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, this morning we're going to be starting, launching into a new sermon series, the book of Colossians. And in order to do that, as a preface to that, I want to talk about the man behind the letter. I want to talk about the author behind the letter this morning. Who in the world is this guy, Paul, who writes this letter to the Colossians? And one of the things you'll know, in fact, if you have a pew Bible, if you have your own Bible, or if you have your Bible on your, on your phone, or if you want to, whatever it is, I, you're, please, I want to encourage you to grab that this morning because we're going to be flipping all throughout the Bible this morning. And so if you want to, just be, we'll begin in Colossians. And uh, let me just show you, uh, let me let's take us there. If you have that blue pew Bible, you'll see that uh, Colossians is on page uh, 1015, 1015. And if you would... Just turn to the very to chapter one, verse twenty-four. Again, it's on ten fifteen, verse twenty-four, where Paul says this. He says, "Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you." Now, what is it that he's suffering? Well, he's actually writing from prison. Okay, we're going to come back to that. In fact, our main text this morning is a text where Paul is actually in a trial before Felix a Roman governor. In fact, much of the book of Acts, we find Paul in trouble, if you will. And, uh, and so Colossians itself is, a, is a, a, one, of those, one of three, at least three letters that Paul writes from prison. And, uh, and so I want to introduce you to this man. Paul's life, uh, and I, this may sound really weird and nerdy to some of you, but I actually spent four years of my life studying the Apostle Paul. And I just, and the reason why, and here's, there's, there's a couple reasons why, but when you read Paul's letters, there is something where you look at his life and you think, this is the last person, or that this person's life is a life that I would never want to have. <laughs> because the guy is constantly just, I mean, he's constantly taking it in the chin. I mean, anyone who would study the life of Paul has to know that it's a life of suffering. It is a life of rejection. It is a life of disappointment. And I chose this particular passage, Acts 24, to illustrate that point. But it's a life of tremendous suffering. But I didn't, I'm not this sort of uh, weird person who likes to watch people suffer. The reason that I found Paul to be so intriguing, why I wanted to, to study him more, is that in the midst of that suffering is such incredible joy. In fact, that very verse I just read to you, verse 24, now I, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I mean, who talks like that? And joy is a theme, just as suffering is a theme all throughout Paul's letters, joy is a theme. And what, it, what, what would it be like to live your life that as you suffer, as you struggle, through that suffering, you arrive at a place of joy. 
That never is your suffering somehow wasted or just strange or just, I'm just completely capricious or random, but it's actually connected to a larger purpose, both internal growth as well as external fruitfulness and service. And so I was so intrigued, in fact, I was in college that I, that I was so intrigued by the book of Philippians where Paul speaks of joy as a major theme of Philippians. In fact, if you look, if you have your Bible and you're in chapter, Colossians chapter 1, you'll look to the left and you'll see that right before the letter of Colossians is the letter to the, the Philippians. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll actually conclude our time this morning in Philippians because I want to show you a few passages where Paul is interpreting how Paul interprets his imprisonment. But Paul is a fascinating figure, not only perspective of one who finds joy in the midst of suffering, but he's a fascinating historical figure. In fact, if there are two things that historians, whether they're Christian, non-Christian, anti-Christian, whomever they may be, there are two things that about Paul's life that no historian, no serious historian can actually deny. The first is this, that Paul persecuted Christians. In fact, he thought of the Christian church as a horrific deformation. In fact, he saw the leaders of the Christian church as, if you will, as quacks. Now think about those of you who are, say, you're in the medical profession and you're a doctor or you're a nurse and you think very seriously, you care for your patients. What is it like when you come across someone who's a quack? Maybe you see them on YouTube, or you see them, I know, some one of your patients comes in and says, oh, this is what I'm doing for my body, and you're just, you just want to explode, because here's this person being led astray by something that is fake. And you, maybe your everyday, your everyday uh, sort of doctor or medical health professional will be like, man, that's kind of frustrating, it's irritating, but they don't actually do anything about it. But if you really cared, if you really were mindful of your patients, if you really didn't want people being misled, what would you do? You would go after that quack. You would pursue them. You would expose them. And that's exactly what Paul did. He, he saw himself as the one who understood the ancient Torah, who understood the, the, the laws and the ways of God, and saw this early fledgling church and its leaders as quacks, as counterfeits, as frauds. And so he went after them. He was a persecutor of Christians. And all the early documentation shows that. The, the historical record shows that he was a persecutor of Christians. But you know what the other thing that, that the historical record shows? Undeniable to historians is that Paul becomes one of the most ardent proclaimers of Christianity in the first century world. In fact, that he, more than any other figure, is responsible for the spread, the growth of Christianity throughout the first century world. And the question that historians grapple with is what? What happened? Like, what in the world? How do you go from being this, this great persecutor of Christians to being this great proclaimer of Christ? How do you, what, what happens and if you're just this ordinary Joe Schmo, everyday historian, you know, in your office, and you're trying to, it's a head scratcher. It doesn't make sense. And here's why. Is that Paul had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Nothing to gain and everything to lose. So as a historian, you look for economic or financial gain. Maybe there's some sort of economic opportunity there. No. 
Maybe there was some sort of social improvement. You know, he could have been more, more accepted, more widely received, more popular. No. Maybe he could have had more political clout or influence. No. In every way, it is a loss for Paul to move from persecutor of Christians to proclaimer of Christianity. In fact, I want you to turn to, in your, in your Bible, again, I told you we're going to be moving around, turn to, to the left to the book of Galatians, to letter that, another letter that Paul writes, the Galatians. It's on page 1001 in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along. Because Paul himself tells us about this, about this very transformation, okay? Verse 13. For you have heard, again, this is page 1001, Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He's writing to the Galatians. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. How's that for honesty? From the Paul's words himself. Verse 14, listen to this. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He says, I was killing it. I was advancing uh, uh, religiously, I was advancing spiritually, I was advancing in terms of the hierarchy and the organization of, of, the, of the Jewish leadership. Verse 15, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. And there's this time, we don't even know what happens. Paul is like off the map for a certain amount of time after this happens. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to be acquainted with Cephas, etc., etc. Verse 21, then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard this report. Here's the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Now let me, let me, the question again is what happened to Paul? Okay, what happened to him? And we're going to find that out. I want to turn, again, turn to the left. We're going to go to the book of Acts. That's where our passage for this morning is. But before we get to that passage, I want us to go to Acts chapter, see, look at Acts chapter 21. Paul is, has made a number of missionary journeys. Uh, in Acts, in Acts, from Acts 13, 14, 15, all throughout the, those chapters. And, and at a certain point, he decides to return to Jerusalem, and he wants to return to, to Jerusalem for this reason, is that there's, there's tremendous poverty and famine and heartache in, the, in Judea and in Jerusalem. And what he wants to do is gather money, uh, gifts, financial gifts, from all of the Gentile churches as a way of showing solidarity and to bring that gift to those who are suffering in Jerusalem and in Judea. And so he's, he arrives there and uh, word has gotten out about him and it is not a good report, as we'll see. And what happens, in fact, is that he's in the temple. Uh, some, some, uh, some Jews from, from, uh, from Asia Minor, they, they, they see Paul, they recognize him, they, they freak out, they start accusing him of all kinds of things, it causes a riot. 
Um, some, some of the Roman uh, soldiers hear about it. They come in, and they actually have to seize Paul to keep him safe. And they bring him into, uh, they bring him into the barracks to keep, to, to keep him safe. They begin to question him. And what follows from there is actually a, a fascinating situation, okay? So, but before that happens, Paul is able to calm the crowd down. They were very upset. And in chapter 22, we see this him speak to the crowd there in the temple courts. Listen to what he says. I want you to hear this from his own mouth. Verse 1, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. So he's speaking to a very angry crowd. They're not happy with him. Verse 2, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became quiet. That's a very smart move because in order to listen to Aramaic, you have to, Aramaic words aren't like English where it's like one word after another sequentially. Uh, an, uh, an Aramaic sentence like Greek is, has words all throughout it and you have to listen to the whole sentence before you can make sense of it. And he says this, but then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus was on the southern uh, border of what we would call Turkey today or Asia Minor. Tarsus was a a major educational center. It would be like saying how I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right? Or it would be like saying I was born in, in, uh, in, in Oxford, England. Okay, he was born at a major cultural and educational center. He was very, very cosmopolitan. He says, I, was a, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all of the council can, then, can themselves testify. So you can, you can back that up. I even obtained letters from, the, from, from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was a man on a mission. Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, now just to understand, Saul is Paul's Jewish or Semitic name. Okay, he had a very common in that day. You had a, a Gentile or, or, or a Greek name as well as a Semitic name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 8, who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear his words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So there we see, this is very important, this is the Easter tide season, we've had just Easter last week, and what is it, and what, what solves this historical conundrum for the scholars, 
for the historians. Well, there's really only one, only one solution. How do you account from a man going from persecuting Christians to proclaiming Christ? He saw or he claimed to have seen the resurrected Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you think you're doing? <laughs> Whoops, right? And Paul immediately realized that he couldn't have been more wrong. He had thought he was so right. He had lived, listen to this, he had lived a religion that was all about being right. And it took an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ to realize, to invite him into, really to push him into a, a, a religion that was all about being wrong. A religion that was all about realizing how wrong we have been and how often how wrong we continue to be. And so what happens from this is that he begins to explain his story, but what happens at a certain point, the, the crowd freaks out. They don't want to hear him anymore. These, um, these Roman, uh, it's a fascinating story. These Roman uh, uh, soldiers come in. They grab him. They remove him into, into, into safety. He, remind, he says, hey, look, I want you to know I'm a Roman citizen. And immediately the soldiers have to treat him in a certain way with a certain respect and a certain uh, legal procedure that they wouldn't have otherwise had to do. And then what you have is seen in, verse, in chapter 23 where Paul appears before the Sanhedrin, and that doesn't end up going very well either. In fact, he remains in prison, uh, being really protected by, by the, the Roman guard there. In fact, it's so dangerous that, um, that he has to be moved to, uh, to the... Uh, to the, uh, the, the uh, a city by the sea of the Mediterranean called Caesarea. In fact, in verse 23, chapter 23, there's this fascinating plot attempt to kill Paul. And that, that listen to this, kids. This is really neat. This is really cool. Paul, this, this, this attempt to kill Paul by these 40 men is thwarted by a young boy. It's just really, it's amazing. In fact, let me just read it for fun here. It's just so fascinating. Verse 12 of 23 says, The next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath as not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. I mean, think about it. This is a serious situation. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commanders to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting some more accurate information about his case. But we, we are ready to kill him before he gets there. So there's going to be an ambush. Verse 16, But, but, but when the, the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, listen to this, this is a young boy, he went into the barracks and told Paul, then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Now imagine what that would be like, kids. Think about it. You're this, you're this kid. And this centurion, this Roman centurion, invites you to come speak to him. Verse 19, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? Verse 20, he said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext, pretending like they want more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because th there was more than 40 of them are waiting to am in ambush for him. 
They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. Verse 22, the commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me, right? And so what, what does the commander do? He says, well, look, this is clearly not a place where we can have a, a real judicial uh, you know, due process. And so what he does, by armed guard, by night, listen to this, with, with 70 horses and 200 spearmen, Paul is escorted um, a, 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 out, out of Jerusalem to, again, the seaside city of Caesarea, Okay, where, the, where, the, where Governor Felix is. And he writes this letter, et cetera, et cetera. And we, 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 in, in chapter, the beginning of chapter 4, we arrive at finally at the actual trial that Paul is going to have before the Roman governor there in Caesarea. And I want to read this, this, this section to you because it's just simply fascinating. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. Now, we don't know if this, this lawyer, this orator, this raider, as they were called, Tertullus was a Jew or a Gentile. I'm inclined to think that he was a Gentile. But, uh, I think, but, but, they, but that, the point is that they hire this guy because they want to make sure that, that they have someone who's familiar with the Roman legal system who will represent them and argue their case against Paul. Verse 2, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before the, the governor Felix. Listen to this argument. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Now that's a really, you know, this is very traditional Roman rhetoric. You sort of butter up, right, whomever you're speaking to. You say, hey, you know, you're awesome, you rock, you're an amazing person, and here's what we, here's what we think. Okay, but this is actually very strategic because we have enjoyed a long period of peace. And by peace, it's not just, hey, everyone's having fun. It's peace in the sense of law and order. There's been no insurrection, no rebellion. We've been able to conduct our affairs. We've been able to, to live in peace and to, to have a reliable situation where we can economically flourish, etc. And the point here is that he's going to say, hey, look, we've enjoyed peace. And there's this guy, Paul, and guess what? He's a disturber of the peace. Everything that you've been trying to do, everything that your entire regime, your entire administration stands for, well, guess what? This guy's, this guy's trouble. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere, in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you, weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear, hear us briefly. We have found this man... And I want to take, take, take each of these charges just real briefly and talk about each one. We found this one, this, one, this man, to be a troublemaker. So first and foremost, Paul is a troublemaker. And that's a fair translation. The Greek word loimos here literally means plague. We have found this man to be a plague. A one-man coronavirus. Right? This guy is a pandemic. Think about that. I mean, as, as, a, you know, as a congregation, we can relate to that. Think about it. One guy causes all the heartache of the last year and a half to an entire nation. This man is a loimas. He is a plague, a pestilence. He's a public enemy. He is, he is, a, he is simply one who isn't, let me say it this way, he's, he's personally a disease. Unhealthy. And Christianity isn't healthy. It's not normal. And why is that? Because under your reign, Felix, everything's fine. Everything's great. 
You Romans have solved everything for us. What's it, well, what was it called? The, the peace established by Augustus. The Pax Romana. That's right, the Pax from the Roman peace. It's just, hey, everything's just fine, and this guy's causing trouble. Everyone's doing great until this guy shows up. But of course, what Paul is saying, what Paul's preaching is backed up by what Jesus himself. What does Jesus say? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? I have not come to call the righteous, but, but sinners to repentance. And it raises this question, am I okay? Because if you think you're okay, you're not going to like Paul. He will be a pestilence to you. If you think you're healthy, if you think you're fine, if you think you don't need a doctor, in fact, I don't know if you, many of you, this is for you, some of you younger ones, if you deal in things like memes on your phone, there's a, a meme, a very well-known meme, that has Ross from Friends. And the meme is this, where Ross says, I'm fine. I'm fine. This denial that every, actually everything's not fine at all, but it's pretending like everything's fine. My question for you this morning as we looked into Colossians is this. Is everything fine with you? Are you healthy? Are you okay? Because if you think that, if you're at peace, everything, everything's fine, you won't like Paul. You know why? Because Paul is going to demand change, radical change. Let me just give you a quick example. Turn to the right to Colossians. In the book of Colossians, there's sort of a, uh, an, ad, an, an advertisement for things to come here. Again, to the right in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. This is page 1016. Chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to this. This is brutal. I'm not going to like Paul. He's so difficult. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what, what belongs to your earthly nature. Paul's going to demand that we put things to death. That's the violent language, isn't it? And look, there are certain things in your life that need to die. <laughs> wow. Right? Uh, enlist them, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. You think, oh yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I don't struggle with lust and those kind of things. He continues in verse 8, but now you must rid also rid yourselves of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. And he goes on. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices, Paul's going to say, actually, the you that's you is an old self. It's not the real self. But there's something new that God is doing in your life and he demands radical action. Paul's going to insist you're not healthy. In fact, when, why does he do that? Why, where is Paul getting that? Where is Paul getting this idea that you have to take radical action? That if your eye sins, what do you need to do? Gouge it out. Who said that? Jesus said that. If your hand, your foot causes you to sin, what do you need to do? Cut it off. What? Who talks like that? There's no one in our culture saying that. No one in our culture. Everyone's saying what? I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. And if you think that, you are going to see Paul as a troublemaker, a disturber of the peace, a pestilence, a plague. Okay? And the question again is, am I healthy or not? Am I okay? And the question even more pointedly is, how am I not healthy? And how, how sick am I? So I don't know about you, I can be sick, but I'm still not going to go where? To the doctor, right? I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not yeah, I mean, I'm sick, but I'm, I'll be fine. I got this. I'm going to manage this on my own. 
And Paul's going to insist that you need community. He's going to insist that you, you can't do this alone, that it's a community thing, that our fight against sin, that our struggle for true peace, for true health, is a community effort, that in that small group on Wednesday that you don't want to go to, you say things like, you know what, I'm really hurting, and I don't know what to do. I'm really scared, I'm anxious, I'm addicted, I don't know what to do. Because we need each other. And Paul's going to insist that we need that community, that we need to be encouraging each other, challenging each other, loving and celebrating each other. And I'd say, I'd say something difficult, Good Shepherd. You know, so often in sermons I'll say, hey, I'd love to hear from you. If you're struggling in that way, come talk to me. And in the week or two weeks, three weeks that follow, I don't hear from anybody. And maybe you don't have to come to me. I'm not, I'm not the answer guy. Maybe you go to a Christian council. That's great. Maybe you go to another brother or sister in the Lord. Maybe you go to a key mentor figure from another church. That's great. It doesn't have to be me. But my hope, my hope is that you're going to someone. And I just want you to know I'm here to weep with you, to long with you, to dream with you, to pray with you, and to strategize, to come up with a plan. Hey, let's, let's tackle this. Let's fail together. Let's struggle together. But guess what? I really do believe, not because I have this wonderful special knowledge, because we have the scriptures, I have my own struggles that I've learned from, and also because I've done this before with so many other people, I really might be able to offer some help. Not because it's me, but because it's the power of God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit working through us. So first, Paul is portrayed as a disease. Second, very quickly, he's, he's, he's portrayed as a disease personally, but he's also, more importantly, he's, he's portrayed as a disease publicly. He's a disturber of the peace. That's what this term, that's what this phrase means, going back to Acts 24. He says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, and that's what the NIV translates it, troublemaker, because it's this notion of disturbing the peace. You know, hey, hey, look, Felix, you've worked so hard. All your whole administration has been about peace, and this guy here is a troublemaker. You need to understand that. And why is that? Listen to this. This is fine, because it's the Pax Romana. Everything's fine. And let me just briefly share. I know, I know this is, I, I want to belabor this point, but I want to give you an understanding of the political uh, um, context here. So when Caesar Augustus, so the, the very first emperor, because Rome, Rome used to be a republic, the very first emperor of the, of, the, of the Roman Empire was a guy by the name of Gaius Octavius, and he's better known to church history as Caesar Augustus. And when Augustus died in AD 14, which would have been about, you know, about 30, uh, 30 to 40 years earlier to, to what's happening in our text, on, the, on a number of monuments throughout the entire empire, there was a, a, a script or a text written that was known as the, listen, it's called the Latin, the Res Augustus Divi Augusti. That is the, the, the things accomplished by the divine Augustus. And it just lists all of the exploits, all this, so that everyone remembers what Augustus did, right? It's all these, on all these monuments, the same sort of list of incredible, amazing achievements that Augustus accomplished. And listen, for example, to some of the things that he says. Here's one. The Alps, from the region which lies nearest to the Adriatic, as far as the Tuscan Sea, I brought to a state of peace. You see that? Earlier in, earlier in there, he says, the provinces of the Gauls, the Spains, and the, Ger and the Germans, I reduced to a state of peace. 
Now, how do you think he brought them to a state of peace? Right? Those of you, you think of, think of 20 years ago. It's amazing enough, it's been 20 years ago. The movie Gladiator came out. If you remember the opening scene of Gladiator, right? They're, they're on the border of Germania, and there are these you know, tribal Germans, etc. And, and I, don't, I can never forget the words where the guy says, uh, the, the, the assistant to Maximus, you know, the great general, he says, people should know when they are conquered. Right? And Maximus says, what does he say? Would you? Would you know? Would I know? Right? There's a sense that this, we're trying to bring them peace. Don't they get it? <laughs> right? This is Roman peace. This is the Pax Romana. In fact, one of the most highly respected ancient Roman historians today is a guy by the name of Tacitus. And he puts, in one of his books, he puts the following words into uh, one of his, one of his uh, characters. He says, the Romans, the Rome, listen to this, the Romans make a desert and they call it peace. Wow, oh, isn't that amazing? Think of the Old West. There was a gun. What was the name of that gun? The Peacemaker. <laughs> right? Think of human conceptions of peace. In fact, in the coal where I grew up in, in Montana, conservative, and, and don't, don't, don't judge us one way or another, but in, during the Cold War in the 80s, you know, this is Ronald Reagan. There was, a, you know what the peace sign is? You're all familiar with the peace sign. It's a circle. It's got a line right now with the two going this way, right? Well, this was a co-opting of the peace sign. We had a circle, and in the middle of that circle was an Air Force bomber called a B-52 that had the shape exactly like the same light, and it said peace the old-fashioned way, right? That's interesting, you know, U.S. international policy, right? There, there, there are ways that our culture and our nation define peace and demand that we follow that way of peace that are utterly foreign to the gospel. And when the gospel comes into it, we are seen as a pestilence, as troublemakers, as those who are causing trouble. And of course, the fact that Paul would be seen as a, as a disturber of the peace is found where? Back to Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 12, Do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I, not, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five and one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. In short, listen to this. The establishment of Jesus' peace on earth means that there will be division on earth. Thus, everywhere where Paul went, and you can see this as you read the book of Acts, everywhere where Paul went, he disturbed the status quo. And my question to you is this. Will peace real human flourishing come through politics today? Will it come through, well, I don't care if it's progressive or conservative, will human flourishing really happen? Is it happening? Or will it come through the gospel? As we come to, the, to consider Colossians, will we see it as a document that can bring real peace, true peace, not a fake, counterfeit Pax Romana, a Pax Americana, peace, Pax progressive, a Pax Republican, whatever it is, a true Christian peace that will disturb the world, that will disturb the church. That's what Colossians is about. Colossians is a book written by a man who was a plague, who was a disturber of the peace, both in the world but also in the church, very briefly. Look at the rest of verse, of verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up, listen, stirring up riots among the Jews all the world. Paul was causing division amongst the people of God. It's very important. And my question to you is, are we to be a church that pretends like everything's okay? 
Are we to be a church that is all about just our church where there's no unrest, no disturbance, because I'm okay, you're okay. We've arrived as Christians, we're good. Because there really are churches like that. Are we willing to sit before the letter of the Colossians and say, you know what, as a church, we're not there yet. We need to grow in these areas together. We need to be the body of Christ in ways that we're not. We need to be the family of God in ways that we're not. We need to conduct the mission of God in ways that we're not. And we need to grow and we want to receive this letter. Final point here. You've been patient with me. My final point here. Paul was a plague, a disturber of the people. But listen to this. He was a deceiver of rednecks. Look at verse 5 again. I love this caricature of Paul. He said, he says, he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. That's the way, and listen, Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And that was not a compliment, because guess what Nazareth was? It was Hickville. It was Redneckville. It was backwoods. It was backwater. It was uneducated. It was, the, it was those stupid people who just don't get it the unenlightened, the unformed, the unsophisticated. And so he says, look, Felix, this this guy's a ringleader. I mean, misleads like these people out there and they're their, they're doing their thing. They're so dumb. They don't get it. They haven't, they don't have a college degree. What could they possibly know about bringing flourishing and life to this world? Okay, so Paul is... So this is, I want to return to a beatitude that we just went through the beatitudes. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who what? Who speak ill of you. Who persecute you. Who misrepresent you. Who slander you because of my name. Rejoice and leap for joy in that day because great is your reward in heaven. If we are living faithfully as Christians, we will be misrepresented. In fact, we'll be misrepresented. Who's misrepresenting Paul here? It's not Felix, at least not yet. Right? Who is it? Those who claim to be the people of God. That's scary. It's scary. Man, I talk to my pastor friends so often. Again, we're, we fail. We, we're miserable. We, we have regrets. I can't believe I said that. What was I doing? I was a plague. Man. But so often, we're like, man, sheep. Ooh, sheep have big teeth. Listen, I, it's challenging. Paul is saying here, man, this, if, to be a faithful Christian is to make enemies in and outside the church. And it's hard to know. Am I the plague? Who's the plague? Whose fault is this? It's confusing. But Paul is saying, is realizing to follow Christ is indeed to be misrepresented. Let me just close very briefly. because I, I want to just come to the end. Paul makes his defense. I'm not going to go into that. I want to close the very... So Paul, I mean, Felix hears the, the, the prosecution. He hears Paul's defense. And this is so great. It doesn't make a bit of difference. I love this. I, you know, this is this, this last section here. Uh, verse 24. Let's read this and we'll all land the plane here. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Let me just add, Drusilla is a Jew. She's a Jewess. And uh, we're not we're quite sure how old Felix is. He's probably in his 40s or 50s. And Drusilla's about 16. So that gives you a sense of who Felix is. In fact, he actually stole her from another man. This guy's as corrupt as corrupt can be. This is, welcome to, to the Pax Romana, right? 
he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. This is fascinating. As, as Paul talked on about righteousness, self-control, I would say justice, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was, he was what? He's like, I don't think I want to hear about this anymore. <laughs> right? He was afraid and said, that's enough for now. We're good. You may leave, and when I find it convenient, I will send for you. I love that. So how does he govern? By convenience. Okay? Uh, verse 26, at the same time, he was hopeless. Listen to this. He was hoping that Paul would offer him what? A bribe. Yeah, the, 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 the justice, uh, the, the, the wheels of Roman political justice operate much more smoothly when it's oiled by bribes. Right? So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. This is what I want to get to. This is verse 27. When two years had passed. Did you get that? When two years had passed. Here's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Supposed to be out preaching the gospel. And where is he stuck? He's stuck in prison. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Does that make any sense at all? Does that make any sense at all? Here's Paul rotting away in prison. See, the purposes of God are so mysterious. Maybe look at your life right now and you think, I, don't, I can't make sense of any of this. I feel like this is so not my plan. For me. I feel like I was called for this, and this is happening. Well, Paul knows exactly what you're feeling like. But guess what? Guess what happens in prison? I said it earlier in the sermon. What happens in prison while he's there? He writes letters like the, to the Colossians and the Philippians and the Ephesians. In fact, Philippians, in Philippians 1, there's this beautiful line. that says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, that is my imprisonment, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Because to whom is Paul speaking there in, in, in prison? Who is he encountering on a daily basis? All these Roman soldiers. And where are they going dis- to be dispersed to? All throughout the entire empire, soldiers were sent to deploy various places, just like our military today. And they would have heard Paul speak the gospel, and what would they have done with that gospel? They would have taken it with them to the farthest reaches of the, of the Roman Empire. That's pretty shrewd, isn't it? See, God knows what he's doing. His purposes will stand in history. No one remembers Felix. How many of you are like, oh yeah, I remember Felix from my history class. Now you're like, oh, Felix, I don't know who that is. But you know who Paul is. Right? We don't name, I mean, we don't, on the whole, we don't name our, our kids Felix or Portius Festus. What do we name them? We name them Paul, right? God's purposes in history will stand. You may be two years right now in a prison. Don't lose heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you such thanks for the beauty of your word, the hope that it gives, the hope of resurrection life that Paul drew upon being this no-name preacher in a prison, hated, misrepresented, mocked, the subject of a corrupt political and judicial system, a legal system. And yet, Father, he knew that he had seen the resurrected Christ. He knew who was at your right hand. He knew who was at the helm of the cosmos. He knew that your purposes would stand, that you were a God who thwarts the plans of the nations and foils the purposes of the peoples. But your plans, your plans, your purposes stand firm forever. Oh, Father, we rejoice in the beauty, the splendor, the glory of your ways. And we ask that you would bring us into them. Use your spirit as, as your agents of righteousness, as your agents of peace. Father, free us from having to understand our lives. 
to make sense of the immediate moment. And indeed, would we be a people who say, not my will, but your will be done. Oh God, our Father, would you be pleased to use Good Shepherd, this little outpost of your kingdom, for your glory to be a blessing to St. Louis. Father, hear our prayers. We pray them in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus, whose love is deeper than the oceans. Amen.